0: Hello and welcome to the Old Theatre at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Now, given all we've been through in recent years, you may be worried about the world, about global inequality, the excesses of the rich, the numbers of poor, by dysfunctional capitalism. Well, we're here to get some perspective on those issues, some history and some implications of that history. And with me and the audience here is Deirdre McCloskey, Distinguished Professor of, of Economics of history, of English and communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And for five years, she was a visiting professor of philosophy at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. It would be quicker to list the subjects you're not a professor of, (laughs) dear Now, Professor McCloskey has thought hard about the cause of the biggest episode and mystery in our nation's life, the Industrial Revolution, perhaps better called the Great Enrichment. It is the subject of her books, Bourgeois virtues, ethics in an age of commerce, and bourgeois dignity, why economics can't explain the modern world. Paraphrasing Douglas Adams, Professor McCloskey tries to answer the question, how do we go from society asking, how should we eat, to one asking, where should we do lunch? Well, Professor McCloskey's answer is a surprising one, but then she has had a surprising personal and career journey herself, describing herself as a literary quantitative ex-Marxist free market, progressive Episcopalian Christian libertarian, Midwestern woman from Boston, who was (laughs) once not. We will, I hope, deconstruct some of that, but please welcome Professor Deirdre McCloskey. What I want to do is start with the history. I called it the biggest episode in our nation's history, is it the biggest episode, the Industrial Revolution?
1: Well, not really, because it's the follow-on <clears throat> that was big. There had been industrial uh, revolutions elsewhere, in, in Song, China, in, the, in various parts of the ancient world, but there hadn't ever been the 19th and 20th s- century, which could be called a Great Enrichment. Because we went from that $3 a day average in the world in 1800 to $33 a day, a factor of 10 in real terms and in places like England, up to 100. Three to 100, 33 times.
0: Over over 200 years.
1: Over 200 years. That's a pretty good rate of growth.
0: And it's worth saying, of course, that the three dollars a day or plus or minus a few dollars had prevailed everywhere forever until then so it is a remarkable thing that happened
1: they had prevailed since the caves they had prevailed essentially for malthusian reasons and they went on and on and on it was boring it was tedious (laughs) it was very unpleasant
0: right and suddenly something happens okay so we're agreeing that this is huge now how do we explain it how do you explain
1: it well i explain it with a a change in ideology that by accident happens in northwestern europe first in holland then in in uh, in england reluctantly after three dutch wars (laughs) and then in um what became the united states and, and belgium and so forth and now the world the most spectacular event of modern times that reflects this is the growth in China and India, but it started in Holland and England three centuries ago.
0: And why? What happened? What was the f- the, the flick of a switch? Really, wasn't it? In, in, in historical terms, it was so sudden and so quick. It is like the flicking of a switch. What was the switch that was flicked?
1: It was bizarre. There was no way of predicting that this would happen in say uh, uh, in say 1600 in, in, in Shakespeare's time no one would have thought this had, would happen it had never happened before and the switch was equality a new n- uh, a, a, a notion of the liberty and dignity of ordinary people and that, then, made ordinary people bold, <laughs> as it does. And they started to, as, as a student famously said on an examination script many, many years ago, a wave of gadgets swept over England. <laughs>
0: But hang on, so this is the bourgeois, the the, the bourgeoisie that you're talking about well, in the titles of your
1: Well it's it's ordinary folk and among them the bourgeoisie, it's the but commoners. It's, it's not the peasants, though, is it? No, it's not them. Um, unless they devise a reaping machine or something, and then they become bourgeois. Be- because what's what's important here is that there was a market test. Now there there were markets in all human societies. It's not true that the market ar- arises and then we become rich. No, that's not how it worked. There were very good markets in, in, in China for millennia in all things. But there wasn't this, as you call it, the spark. And the spark was ideological, social, and political. And bang, it happened.
0: So that ignites enormous... Innovation in your account. And that's it's the, the innovation key. that's driving it. It's, it's the, the innovation, innovation
1: that's driving it. And that's, that's the problem with the word capitalism. Because th- the very word says capital accumulation is what matters. Piling brick on brick or BA on BA. Now, I'm, I'm in the industry. I, I love piling BAs on BAs. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what made the modern world. It's new ideas Just take me
0: through the the, the link between the ideological change and the innovation. So what exactly happens here?
1: Well, I can give, give you an example, a man named Samuel Arkwright, who we've all heard of, one of the heroes of the Industrial Revolution, a barber and wig maker of Bolton. Now, barbers and wig makers, and certainly not in Bolton, weren't allowed to do what he did in the early uh, 18th century, which was to fiddle around with spinning machines. Indeed, as commonly the case, you were as likely to be thrown off the cliff by the, by the, by the emperor for inventing a labor-saving device as uh, you were to do well as he did. So th- there, there are a million Mutinies of that sort. But you're, you're describing the innovation. My question was,
0: what is the connection between the ideology and the innovation? So why does Arkwright appear in the 18th century and not in the 15th century? What is,
1: because he's not being sat on.
0: That's by the aristocrats? The,
1: by the aristocrats, are indeed partially sat on by, 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 by the peasantry itself. Um, the... Opposition to tall poppies and so on becomes less strong than it, than it was in earlier times. And so there's, there's, there's opportunity. And it's, it's the only way to explain why a backward part of the world, which is what Europe was, especially Northwestern Europe, became so rich.
0: So the, the, the big event happened or the big episode happened and it wasn't because... M- because there were markets that were introduced, because no, there were because markets. There were markets. No. It, 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 it was really to do with this ideological change. It is, some of us had just been a bit skeptical that you could yeah. change,
1: well, you <laughs> that know,
0: ideas could have such know, a big effect. I'm, I
1: know, but we were, we were talking earlier about the idea of picking up your dog's poop, which became quickly the rule. There's no poop on the streets of, of London once there was. So these, these, an these analogy, these the, yeah, ideas, these, the great enrichment. Not for a family program, but it, it, these things can switch. Ideas can switch quickly. That's the key point. And the, the, the crucial example in modern times is 1978 in China, and 1991 in India.
0: Where they flicked the switch and they'd said, let's, let's, the let's put the and light on, and, and, and they've gone through the, the same process.
1: Bang, they were off to the races.
0: Mm-hmm. We, we talk about the Age of Enlightenment, don't we, from around the same time, a little yep. earlier perhaps. What is the difference between your theory and just saying the Age of Enlightenment set the conditions for...
1: Well, my friend Joe Mokir, who is an ally of mine in, in this ideational approach to economic history, he would put more emphasis on the Enlightenment But Joe would agree that it's not the French Enlightenment that's the key here. It's the Scottish Enlightenment. And it's English, specifically English, not Scottish, English traditions of instrument making and craftsmanship which play in here. That's a point that Jack Goldstone makes. Um, And um, Margaret, Jacob is a historian, makes, a similar point about how craft, traditions, open source, te- technical change, a lot of chatter among the engineers makes for a new way of innovating.
0: Right. Economists don't talk about values no. and about ideas in quite the same way that you do. You're not a conventional Economic historian in that, in that sense. But they would talk about, I suppose, modern capitalism or capitalism arriving
1: yeah, they would. And,
0: and, and, and making it work. And the, the clue for them is in that word, isn't it? In capital.
1: It's capital. And, and, and this the surprise to my friends on the left and my friends on the right. I have friends on both, which is why I'm so unpopular, because <laughs> they hate each other. And the, on, the, on, on the left and the right they believe that capital accumulation as, as the master said Marx accumulate, accumulate this is Moses and the prophets and to mm-hmm. dear old Marx the hero of my youth I, I used to find the chairs he sat on in, in the re- reading room in the BM and would always go sit there Hoping that I would be inspired. <laughs> it, it's, it's wrong. It's even even my current hero, um, Adam Smith, uh, uh, it, it, it said that, and that was it was a big mistake. For, for a little growth, it makes a lot of sense. If Scotland is trying to become Holland, then capital accumulation is how to do it. But if you're, that will double your income, maybe. Maybe triple it. We call it, in economics, we call it Smithian growth. Or in economic history, we call it Smithian growth. But that's not what happened. What what happened, understand, is not 100% growth, but anywhere from 2,900% growth, 2,900% growth, to nine thousand nine hundred percent growth, a factor of either thirty or one hundred. Yeah.
0: Thirty times richer, or is up to hundred times, times richer. richer now. Not twice as rich. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the things you write quite a lot about is the role of morality in capitalism. You yeah. say capitalism is drenched in it, it which a true. lot of people and a lot of economists, a lot of economists, just assume it's amoral. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people and we'll get to this in questions, we'll think it's actually often rather immoral. And I I wonder, just very briefly tell us about the bourgeois bourgeois virtues, what the the middle class treasured and what the values were that drove them to innovate. Well, I
1: I wrote another 500-page book, which you can't get at the LSE bookshop. Those are two books you can't get there. Um, uh, Called... The Bourgeois Virtues, Ethics for an Age of Commerce. This is 2006. And it's a very good book. You ought to buy it, order it on Amazon. To forget about the bookstore. But and it, it out, the executive summary is, can you be an ethical person and still participate in a modern economy? And the answer, now you, unfortunately you don't need to buy the book, is yes. And the evidence is all around us. Now, of course, there is evidence of malfeasance on, uh, a mile away from here, um, east. <laughs> and there's, ma- there's malfeasance in an in, in economy, in, in a modern economy. But there's malfeasance, you may have noticed, in an aristocratic economy, or a peasant economy, or a, a spiritual economy. Malfeasance, we are fallen uh, um, creatures. I say, malfeasance is human. To have a full life in business is to have an ethical life, to believe in, 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 in justice and uh, in, 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 in temperance and love, faith and hope and courage, as well as prudence, the economist's virtue.
0: Yeah, the economists understand prudence, they, they, they ignore the others. Um, I, want to, I want to talk in a, a few minutes about the, where this the, theory of the Great Enrichment takes us for now, for today. Before we do, let's just see if there are any questions in the hall uh, on, the, on the kind of historical aspect of the thesis. This, if you like, rewriting of the history of the Industrial Revolution. I think we've got a gentleman up there on the balcony, if we'd like, to, in the middle there. First hand to go up, yes, with the dark sweater. Let's put the um, yeah, the black microphone over there. Yes, yeah, pass it down. Just tell us who you are. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Nico Heller. Um, could you just explain where you sort of differ from uh, Max Weber's um, Protestant uh, work ethic? To me, this sounds like a bourgeois version of uh, Max Weber, but no. maybe not.
1: No, and uh, but it's it's it, it's. It's interesting how it differs. Max Weber is about psychology. One of the great founders of sociology. His theory in 1905, in in the Protestant ethic, was about a change in people's inner beliefs, their spirit, their geist, their geist. My argument is sociological which is not a change within people, but a change in the conversation about people. So it's not exactly that the bourgeois virtues are internal to the bourgeoisie, as much as that people start attributing virtues to innovators, to markets, to progress, to betterment in a way that they were deeply suspicious of before. So that's the crucial, crucial difference. Um, everyone loves Uncle Mox because he, he combined a spiritual cause, the, the doctrine of salvation in Calvinism, with a material consequence. But I report to you that almost everyone who's looked into his theology has said it's wrong, and lots of people have looked into it. It's a wonderful book. Everyone here should read the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And everyone, most people have looked into his economics know that it's wrong too, <laughs> because he said the Protestants worked harder, which is very strange sounding if you're a Catholic. Um, and, and that they saved more, which was factually incorrect. Savings rates in Italy were higher than they were in, say, England or Holland.
0: We've got this really fascinating thing, though, haven't we, that, that effectively we keep thinking, goodness sake, we've got a. Uh, capitalism works here, but it'll never work over there. Exactly. And then we keep challenging it and finding actually it can work over there, or, exactly. or what we're calling capitalism.
1: Exactly. When I was a kid, and I'm still very young, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 71, I feel a child. But when I was a, a student at the LSE, they told us that, you know, those Chinese, they can't ever develop their Confucian. You know, how is a Confucian? going to have economic growth. And about India, well, poor India, I did my undergraduate dissertation, Road and Rail in India. I should sell it as a sleep aid. <laughs> and and, and, it, and it, 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 they, they told us, this is 1964, they told us, ah, you know, you know those Indians? Most of them are Hindus. And what do you expect a Hindu to do in a modern economy, and it was a sheer eurocentric, Christocentric baloney. And so it's proved. Hmm.
0: Let's take another quick question on the uh, on the history. We've got one up uh, here. Yep, that's it.
2: Uh, uh, oh, uh, my name is Lois Chaber. Uh, you talk a lot about the ideology that yeah. you felt was the groundwork for this, this change and attitudes to its innovation. I do. But you don't locate it specifically in the writers or the period. Could you say that it really oh. began with the English Civil War and yeah. the end of the theory of divine right and the importance right. that a Parliament and, and the common members of parliament took would, is, would that be
1: sort of the origin absolutely that's that is certainly one one of it it was right here <laughs> it was in london in again this place a mile to the east, where it happened and you're absolutely right the the uh, the 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 putney debates for example 1642 are filled with liberal thinking and I mean it in the 19th century sense that was terrifying to people at the time that there should be free markets and and free people was an appalling idea and yet eventually it came to be I I, I'm working on another 500 page book which will be the (laughs) which will be the trilogy. Um, it's uh, called The Bourgeois Era, which I urge you not to order at the LSE bookstore, but through any other bookstore. <laughs> and and it, 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 will, uh, it will give the details, the, the texts and the, and the cases in point, but here's, here's an easy one. Shakespeare. Sh- Shakespeare was bourgeois. He was the son of a glover. Uh, He was himself a successful business person. Uh, In none of Shakespeare's plays is the bourgeoisie or indeed economic activity of any sort honored. None of it is. Even in The Merchant of, of Venice, which is his most economistic play, the villain, well, you know, he's got a problem with acc- accumulation. And even poor Antonio, who is the merchant of Venice, is a fool for love and is not a smart businessman. And all the heroes, if they're not uh, 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 um, shepherds, <laughs> are aristocrats. This was not peculiar to Shakespeare. This was the attitude of English people at the time. English people were well known for an arrogant, aristocratic attitude, and in the in the in the in the peasantry, a famous two two-fingered two salute. Um, they weren't making deals. They weren't famous for that, they were famous for violence. So there are lots of texts. Order the book from the University of Chicago Press early <laughs> so as not to be disappointed. Right.
0: All right, well look, I, I'd, I'd like to move on because obviously um, there are a lot of worries about the way the world is working at the moment. Yeah. And I want to pick up some of the implications you draw from your study of history to where we are now. And perhaps one of them is, uh, if you put a huge weight, as you do, on innovation and on the values, the culture that encourages innovation and the innovators, mm-hmm. I wonder whether you are the... We, we could put you in that category that says, for goodness sake, avoid the politics of envy at all costs... Uh, the job is to make the pie bigger rather than to slice the pie differently. I mean, am am I being fair?
1: No, you're being completely fair. Look, all I care about is the poor of the world. All I care about is the wretched of the earth. And if there's anyone here who disagrees with them, with that, I think they're wrong and we ought to argue. It's the poor that matter. What has helped the poor more than any of the envy-driven policies of taxing the rich or um, regulating garbage collection or whatever, the size of the pie. If we were to expropriate the expropriators, I I, I, I was a Marxist once, I I can't help. If, If we were to expropriate the expropriators tomorrow, take all the profits in the British economy and and give them to poor people, it would help them a little bit. What, 20% perhaps? Maybe 30% once. Because you can't keep expropriating the expropriators because they're no longer expropriators, if you understand the problem here. 20%, 30% That's what you get from most extreme redistribution that makes any sense at all. Actually, it doesn't, but that doesn't matter. Let's suppose it makes sense. Suppose it works perfectly smoothly. What was the percentage increase for poor people, and rich, but poor people, between 1800 and the present in a country like Britain? It was not 30% it was 3900% or 2900 or 9900 the the 900 comes from fifth grade arithmetic <laughs> was not
0: when you a, double something it's 100% exactly. rather than 200% That's right. it's, yeah.
1: not a, it's not it's not it's not a 30% increase it's a increase by a factor of 20 30 100, depending on how you measure it. So the engine of economic growth is the great salvation of the working class.
0: So trade unions, government, regulation is not the thing that explains why a working class person today is so much richer than one 100 years ago.
1: I just paid, before I came, 30% of my income to the United States government. Tax Day is coming up. I'm a member of a trade union, the American Federation of Teachers. We were on strike two weeks ago, and I was marching. Down with the bosses. Now, so I'm, I'm not against that sort of activity. I'm not against government. We, we need government to kind of do a bunch of stuff. We don't need government to invade Iraq. I I just don't think we need it for that purpose, but, you know, people disagree on that matter. But if we want to help poor people, and I hope everyone in this room wants to help poor people, we should help poor people. We shouldn't do these other things that at best do nothing and sometimes Make the pie smaller i we were just saying before we uh, came out that we, uh, we we both started to read Trollope for the first time um, and i 've read a uh, the, the the two of the Palliser no- novels um, in his Finn the Irish Member of Parliament, for example, and in it one of the characters, the John Bright character, says. It's not equality we want, we liberals, 19th century style. It's raising up poor people that we want, right? I don't, I, if someone's a better chess player than me, I don't want him to be made less intelligent so that I can beat him. I want to improve my own chess game.
0: Okay, I understand that, but do we have to have this choice between... And I know I framed the question this way to get the answer you've just given, but do we have to have a choice between uh, enlarging the pie or redistributing the pie? Let me me put this to you. Maybe some of the things we've seen, some of the grotesque features of our economy in the last decade or so are things that neither enlarge the pie or redistributed it in the ways that would help the poor which is uh, the the objective that we're talking about. Maybe employing some of your brightest people, instead of working out clever ways to invent new smartphones, you employ them to work out more and more devious ways to extract money from everybody else. And maybe that's what we've done in the financial sector, for example, So maybe, if we can can regulate that away, tax it away, intervene a little bit more, those people would actually do something more productive rather than less productive.
1: Yeah, this is an old argument, and even even Adam Smith made such an argument. (laughs) Um, That there are some parts of the economy that are unproductive, that don't really do anything. And I, I, I think old Adam Smith was wrong about that. I think that a market test is pretty good. It's so all I'm claiming. Pretty good. I don't think if it's perfect, then we'd li- live in Hang a Hang on, you're world. denying the
0: existence of what one would call genuinely predatory activity.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not. And if there's genuinely predatory activity, people should go to jail, and they, and they should. Well, let,
0: let me give you an example that I heard. I'm going to drive around in a van with a premium-rate phone number on the back, saying, how's my driving with this expensive phone number on the back? Right. And then I drive really badly, and people... I, I phone that phone number and don't realise that they're giving me a pound every time they do it. Now, that seems to me pure predation. It's fraud.
1: It's fraud. It is.
0: No, it and isn't. It's the perfect... What's to stop...
1: No, it's, a, it's fraudulent. It's,
0: no, you it's, see, I think you've just defined fraudulent as stuff that you really hate. But
1: no, no. No. there are lots
0: of activities. <laughs> there are lots of activities that are very predatory. They basically... They make money because people know. don't understand what I they're know. buying. I know. And, and, and but they're then, not fraudulent.
1: And then the... Qu- uh, look... Fraud and force I'm against, and that is the role for the government, to stop force and fraud. Go ahead.
0: No. Well, what about asymmetries of information? Because Asymmetri- what we know, and no. what everybody who studies no. economics now knows, no. is that markets are riddled with asymmetries. And that and that is, and, is, so the person buying no. insurance or an extended warranty knows less about the product than the person selling it, and no. that's no. the no. only reason no. they would be stupid no. enough to buy it. Isn't that, that the is
1: proof? not what economics has shown. Economics has said among other faults, pr- pr- presumed faults in the market, say monopoly, some of them have said there exists asymmetric information. So my friend Joe Stiglitz says this. Um, uh, lots of my friends say it. And they're, but they offer no evidence that it's a big deal. None at all. They, uh, 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 George Ackerloft, a brilliant scientist and and another friend of mine, um, was the one who spoke of the uh, of the lemons. I've owned lemons. Never buy a Peugeot five hundred four station wagon. (laughs) Believe me, I sold it for junk in five years. But quiz custodian custodium. Who are you going to trust to fix this asymmetric information? Does it strike you as plausible that parliament, (laughs) and if that doesn't strike you as implausible, try the United States Congress, (laughs) is a good instrument for discerning what's information and what's baloney. So you you can't compare ideal socialism with ideal capitalism. That's a fool's errand, we don't get anywhere that way. Because ideal worlds are ideal, that's kind Mm -hmm. of how they're constructed. So you have to look at the actual ability of government to do things, and some things they do very well, and some things not so well, and the actual empirical, factual, scientific prevalence of market imperfections. You can't just go around as Joe Stiglitz does all the time saying, well it's been shown, and he shows it on a bloody blackboard. It's been shown that asymmetry causes a big deal in the economy. Joe has never done any empirical work in his life. No, I'm not making this up. Uh, uh, George has, but Joe has not. Joe knows nothing about the world. Uh, He's, no, he's, now look, this is a nice guy. He's an excellent economist. He deserved his Nobel Prize, but he's
2: not. He does, he
1: does, but, but he's, he's not an economic historian. He's not a real empiricist, which is, uh, but I repeat myself. And so he doesn't know the facts of the world he's never confronted whether or not asymmetric information is important or not mm. not even in automobiles or at least George I, has.
0: I just wonder whether you're a very glass half full person really i, I mean am. because you do and, and maybe you're a glass half full person because you're a historian and of course if you compare us now to stone age man or to, good. or to uh, yeah. pre pre-industrial <laughs> revolution uh, Britain, it, does, it looks pretty darn good. It really does. But, but, but maybe, I'm just maybe, people of... could hold themselves to a slightly higher standard well, and say, well, we can do a little better than comparing ourselves to 200 years ago. Why, why couldn't we make our country as rich as... Yeah. fill in the you know insert well, country here as rich well, as the United States or as rich well, as Germany there are sort of smaller differences aren't there between countries that might be interesting
1: but they're very small and you're, you're, you're asking the same question my 91 year old mom says when I say <laughs> oh mom put it in perspective she says oh god enough with the perspective <laughs> 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 the perspective these, these thieves on Wall Street we gotta get after them she says but but you know i don 't want Britain to become the united States um, we We already have fifty states we don 't need another big state, although I agree it would be better than Texas. <laughs> uh, but but but, we, I, 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 and, but Britain is a very rich country i spent the early part of my career as an economic historian, arguing against the claim, a very common claim, you still hear it, that Britain failed economically in the late 19th century or early 20th or yesterday, which is just ridiculous. It's a very successful country, although I wish you would fix your toilets. <laughs> uh, they're the only ones in the world that don't flush. You have to pump them. <laughs> I don't get it. You, 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 you can make hot water brilliantly. here. You're, you're very good at this, but but there, there are there are, are differences between these these leading countries of which there are about thirty now and, and increasing numbers every year. Sweden, uh, Italy. Uh, these are all very rich countries. I'm sorry, Mom and you. I'm sorry by historical per, you know, historical and comparative perspective, because there are still countries down at one or two or three or four dollars a day. Plenty of them although many fewer than there once were. And, it does, I, you know, look, would you have to give a, up cricket to become American? In which case, I advise you don't become America. It's, uh, cricket is a better game than baseball, although your team didn't do very well.
0: But your point is that all the differences between affluent nations, whether they're number they're one in the league or number 15 in the league, these are just detailed details. They're, they're small and they're, potatoes. Yeah, they're small small
1: potatoes. potatoes. And, and I'm working on the large potatoes. I want Bangladesh to become wealthy. I want Sub-Saharan Africa to develop and become rich like the United States or Britain or France or, or Botswana for that matter. And, and I, that's what matters to me as an economist and as a human being.
0: But you've also made the point, though, that for a country like Britain or the United States, stay on the course you're on, don't worry too much about a small number of people, the 1%, as they're often called, who are walking off with such a big portion of our national income, and growing portion. And I'd like to get some questions from the hall here on these issues around... Contemporary capitalism and where we are now. Yeah, the gentleman over there. Yeah, uh, this is the red mic. Yeah, pass it down the road. Do tell us who you are, what you're studying, if you're here. Or
3: hi, I'm uh, Tony Richards. I was studying public policy here. Um, I guess I'd just like to sort of pick up on this on this point about um, uh, you, you talk. Uh, I kind of want to bring a resident academic into the room Uh, his name is Peter Hall um, and his partner Jonathan Soskis Um, and one of the big studies they did um, was to look at um, where, it was a historical study but it was also um, a modern study, I want to go back to this, this hypothesis why um, economics can't explain the modern world um, because they explain it extremely well. They explain the difference between an economy like ours and an economy that's been incredibly resilient in the post-economic crisis like Germany. And they look at the centralization of wage bargaining institutions, the fact that trade unions are heavily entrenched in these economies, the fact that government gets heavily involved in these economies and insulates its citizens against these kind of changes. Well. And I was just wondering if you could sort of respond to that in terms sometimes, of sometimes
1: you know, sometimes that works to have the government have more power, although giving the American government more power or the Italian government more power is like giving whiskey and the cart keys to a teenage boy. <laughs> it's not a good idea. If you have a polity like Sweden or Germany, although what? Do you want to become Germany? Is it because you want to win football matches? What's your <laughs> problem here? That, um, it, it's, it's not at all. Look, understand that the competence of the government is an issue here. Now, I'm not saying that the British government is incompetent. It's very competent at some things. Again, it's not so competent at others. So that needs to come into the argument. You can't just say, oh, let me have some of that uh, uh, um, nice works relationship between company unions and the bosses they have in Germany. Well, it may be that the British society doesn't include that. If you're going to play cricket, you're not going to do... You know, so... it. it And it doesn't matter. There I would disagree with Hall and his colleague. It doesn't matter that much. It's not true that that, uh, Germany is vastly more resilient than than in the British economy, it's just false. The uh, income per head is now slowly in the world, actually in the world, income per head in, in real terms is 10%, now that's the whole world now, not just Britain is 10% higher than it was in 2008. So, we're, let's not get panicked by the Great Recession. It was nasty, I'm not recommending it. I wish <laughs> those people who, who, who allegedly caused it, if they did um, illegal things, they should go to jail and they haven't, but I'm an economic historian. We've had 40 recessions since 1800, 4-0. Six of them have been as bad or worse than the last one we had, the 2007 8 one. So let's not, uh, my Marxist friends say, ah, oh, they're, they're ecstatic, or at least they have been for a couple of years. They're ecstatic because they say, ah, the final crisis of capitalism. And I say to them, dear... <laughs> you were saying that about the 1857 recession
0: <laughs> you're back into seeing it in perspective again aren't you let's, and let's, stand, let's take a, another question we've got a gentleman right at the back there on the blue mic yep.
2: um, Howard Webb uh,
1: uh, an alumni of uh, the LSE um, you were talking about your ambition about um, raising up sub-Saharan Africa or Somalia to
0: uh, greater wealth getting the same sort of and growth rates
1: you you described in the first part of your talk. Absolutely. What is the switch that is needed in those countries? Because, after all, the ideas are all around us now. What what, what will happen in those parts of the world? Well, clearly, in a place like Somalia, first you need the rule of law, and that goes without saying. Um, And I I think you and I would completely agree on that, that that let's get a government in Somalia and South Somalia and wherever, let's get a government that works and that can stop people from killing each other. Yes. But once you have that, if you then go say, oh, now we've got a government that can stop people from killing people, let's tax farmers to death and give the money to urban bureaucrats. That sounds like a good idea. Or let's, let's, let's socialize the means of production. That's good. Or let's get a World Bank loan that ends up in Swiss bank accounts. That's a good idea. None of those are good ideas. Once you've got the rather obvious preconditions for economic growth, and they're not rare. China was the place in 1600 that should have had an industrial revolution, not (laughs) these, these pathetic places around the North Sea with their crappy weather. Uh, um, uh, So, then ideology matters.
0: I'm going to say one more question. Yes, over here, the red mic. Uh,
2: Hi, Uh, Diane Perrins from the um, LSE. Um, You began by saying that the switch in relation to the Industrial Revolution was a move towards equality. Yeah. And then, if we take the Keynesian era, where there was a switch towards equality, there were higher levels of growth. In the present last 30 years, there's been widening inequality and lower levels of growth. So how do you square that, those findings with the idea that one should focus only on helping the poor and not redressing inequality?
1: I don't think equality is an ethically sensible purpose. I don't see what variance has to do with anything when you've got poor people who you need to raise up. That's, that's the kind of philosophical point. On the, on the historical point it's not so much that equality changed that, that it's your word not mine. I wish you hadn't used it. The switch Turn on the switch like a light, was not actual equality, it was an ide- ideology of equality. It's an attitude that other people deserve liberty and, and dignity. It's famously put in the American Declaration of Independence, you may have heard of it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was not Thomas Jefferson's invention. It was an 18, by then, it was an 18th century cliche. It was, would be shocking in the mouths of a sh- Shakespeare hero. It would be insane before the late uh, uh, 17th century at the earliest, and more like well into the 18th. I, I, um, I dispute, but look, here, here's the economic history situation. I'm back to perspective, I'm sorry, it's what I'm paid to do. Inequality, rose in the early 19th century in Britain and the United States. Rose, 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 roses. Then it fell, 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 fell. Then it rose, 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 rose. Now we're talking about the early 20th century. By the 1920s, gene coefficient inequality was about the same as it is now. Then in the 30s, it reversed and it went down to the 19, uh, 1970s, then it started to go up. In none of these cases did it change enough that equality was the issue facing the working class. It, wa- it was made an issue by the clergy, by the, most of the people in this room.
0: The intelligentsia.
1: The in- Eligencia, the artists, and the intellectuals. They said, oh, inequality, terrible, oh, consult your Gini coefficients. And, and it, it, it didn't change all that much, even between 1973 and the present. I mean, you say, oh, the top 1%, look, they show it on TV all the time. It must be true, it must be true. It's actually not true. It's, it's in any case, you have to ask, and I think you'll agree with this, what the source of the inequality is. If the source, as you say, is stealing from poor people, I'm against it. If the source is stealing from India, I'm against it. But if the source is you got there first with an innovation that everyone wants to buy, or you can bend it like Beckham, so you get paid some crazy sum. I mean, I I, I, I can bend it. I can't bend a soccer ball, but I can bend ideas, and, and I ought to be paid that much, don't you think? <laughs> so you, you understand the point. If, if the, th- there's nothing to be gained in focusing on inequality if all you're going to do is cut off the tall, tall poppies, even if the tall poppies earned every cent they made. If they stole it, jail them.
0: And the argument is really, your argument must be that if you, if you go after the predators rather than the producers, you will accidentally take enough of the producers down with the predators. No, no. That, that, I, you, that you, you. No, I'm
1: not saying that. Go not? after the predators. As I said. Uh, because this,
0: the predators are all breaking the law already. So they,
1: can, as I said to this gentleman up here, in Somalia, you've got to go after the predators, mm-hmm. you've got to stop the men with uh, AK 47s. And yeah, but they don't come with AK-47s now. They I know, come with, they, they, come don't, they come with, with a... Collateralized uh, the, debt there's obligations. a famous song by Woody Guthrie. He has lots of songs about this. I was a kind of John Baez socialist for a while. and I know all the songs. <laughs> and and it, you, you, can, you can steal with a gun or you, can, like, uh, or you can steal with a fountain pen. And fraud and force are the two things you need to watch out for. And... If you're, if you're just, so yeah. I, there, there, there's, a, there's an excess of government regulation it, as, as though government were perfectly wise. This is the London School of Economics and Political Science. You know that governments are not perfectly wise, although I must say there were many of your early professors who believed they were all wise.
0: I want to move on. I just, just want to get the mood of the hall, though. How many of you in this hall would say you are perturbed, worried, dissatisfied with the salary or the wealth accumulated by David Beckham? How many of you would say that you are uncomfortable with David Beckham's wealth? How many of you would say you're not uncomfortable with that, You know, intensely relaxed? I would say slightly more of you relaxed. Was that what, was that what you would say? And I,
1: yeah. I, uh, I, I congratulate you, and I'll give you a prize afterwards. <laughs> right.
0: That's an, let me just remind uh, you, you're listening to Analysis on BBC Radio 4 with me, Evan Davis. This evening, we're guests of the London School of Economics, where I'm talking to the economic historian, Deirdre McCloskey. Um, let's just pick up some other implications and, and follow on, if you like, from the argument you've been giving us, Professor McCloskey. I wonder whether history has changed whether the great enrichment has stopped. Uh, let me quote a, a little bit of Tyler Cowan in the book The Great Stagnation, The End of the Good Years. Uh, he says, In a figurative sense, the American economy has enjoyed lots of low-hanging fruit since the 17th century. Free land, immigrant labour, powerful new technologies. During the last 40 years, that low-hanging fruit started disappearing. We, Pretended it was still there, but we failed to recognize that we're at a technological plateau. The trees are bearer than we'd like to think. That's it. That's what's gone wrong.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I am a great admirer of Tyler and of Bob Gordon, who's an, another person who says this, another economist. And I've known them for a long time, and they're fine scholars, fine economists. And both of those people are, are fact people. They're empiricists, they're not like Joe, uh, you know, blackboard. And so they're actual scientists, whereas Joe is a philosopher. I admire philosophy, but thats it's not economics. It's not economic science. Okay. Um, (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) I I can only quote Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said in 1830 now, on what principle, when we've seen nothing but progress before, now that's a little bit twee, I have to say, about the 100 years before 1830, but not, not crazy, and the 100 years after 1830, and the hundred and two hundred 200 years after 1830, made it not seem twee at all, he said, on what principle, when we've seen nothing but progress before, are we to suddenly believe that the future holds only stagnation. It's been tried. In the 1930s and 40s, Keynes believed that the low-hanging fruit had been plucked. Too bad, and this was what was taken up by lots of people and became a kind of official theory in which I, I was taught about stagnationism. Stagnationism. <laughs> The the, the, uh, the the innovations of steam and steel and then electricity in the automobiles. Automobile had been exhausted and that was it. What were we going to do? What were we going to do? Alex Field, an economic historian, has shown that on the contrary the 1930s were the most innovative decade in American history. Nylon stockings alone. <laughs> um, and. I, a long time ago, I wrote a book called If You're So Smart. I call it the American question. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And in it, I argued that, that predicting the future of human affairs, you can predict the future of physical affairs for sure, but predicting the, the future of, of human affairs is a deeply foolish project because if you knew the next turning point of the business cycle <laughs> or if you knew what the london housing market was going to do you could make a fortune so i guess in the 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 bottom line on on tyler and bob is go sell short and make a fortune <laughs>
0: Okay, I want to take another area which you discuss in the book, which is, of course, happiness. A lot of people wonder whether we've reached a point, and maybe as a result of the great enrichment, where we should focus more on our mental welfare than on our GDP per capita.
1: Well, I think we should always focus on on, on happiness, not on on GDP per capita. But you're sceptical
0: of the economic... economists writing about it, some of whom are here at the LSE.
1: I'm glad to hear that. If they're in this room, I'm going to be lynched afterwards because I wrote an article in the new written public a year and a half ago, (laughs) always with big-time journalism, as you know, Evan. It's It's the journal that supplies the title, not the professor writing the article, and they called it Happyism, the Creepy New Economics of Pleasure. (laughs) Which pretty much summarized my attitude in the article. I take very seriously the study of happiness, but I think it's been illuminated more by the great um, uh, 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 literatures, philosophies, and theologies of the last 4,000 years than by going up to people on the street and asking them on a scale from one to three, how happy are you? I, I, so, yes, I do not regard acquisition or piling up junk as the purpose of life. That's why in, in thinking about, about ethics, I think in terms of, the, of uh, the seven principal virtues, three of which are faith, hope, and transcendent love. That is love of science, or love of God, or love of cricket. And these provide meaning to a human life that sheer prudence does not. So yes, uh, by all means seek happiness. I just think, and the people living on one, two, three, and four dollars a day agree with me, that it's very hard, sleeping rough on the streets of Calcutta, to uh, stop and think. Oh well, but the sun is free.
0: Let's get personal now, if we, uh, if we might, as we get to the end of the conversation. You've become sceptical of economics. I know it's been quite a long journey. You've had a lot of journeys in your life. You oh, were Marxist, you've turned, you were very quantitative. Now you're incredibly literary. But I do both. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the, perhaps the biggest, and I should say, the, you can buy a book, you've promoted books tonight, you can buy a book, Crossing a Memoir, which is about your transition from male to female. You were born as Donald McCloskey or Deirdre now. Is there a connection? what I'm interested in. Is there, is there a connection between the journeys and that last one in particular? Well, and, and the intellectual journey you've made and the argument you're making?
1: Well, I, I, I make a joke. I, I can't um, distinguish becoming older and wiser from becoming a woman. <laughs> 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 and... <laughs> In a way, that, that joke is true. I remember when I was slowly, in the course of my three-year transition, I, I, I caught on to female friendship, and I was a guy. You're looking at the captain of her high school football, American football team. I was a guard. Um, I was an athlete in college as well. I was married for 30 years, I have two children. I was as macho as a professor can be. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I knew from age 11 on that that I wanted to be a woman but I was born in 1942 and 1953, believe me, there was nothing to be done. So I said, oh well, I'll be a guy, that's fine. And I, I was a cheerful guy. Um, I'm happier now, but I I was not a sad sack by any means. But what I learned about female friendship is that love is deep in human life. That the shallow version of love, I was talking with a dear friend of mine, a man, and he said, oh yeah, love is an exchange. You love someone because then they'll do something for you. I said, no, John, that's you got it wrong, (laughs) that's not a mother's love for her child that's not the kind of love that was expressed to me by so many uh, um, so many women during my transition so I kinda got it and I got a wider understanding of humanity, my my mom, I told you about her 91 years old, she says you're so fortunate because you've seen it from both sides and you know I I wish I'd been born a girl and, and I wish I'd had uh, uh, my first period and all those wonderful things that you you, you women have, but, but no in a way she says no don't talk that way, you've, you've had it both ways till age 53 you were a guy and then you're, now you're a woman, you've been, been a woman now for um, almost 20 years and she, she, she says though very wisely don't do anything more interesting
0: <laughs> Look, I, wonder, I, I want to take some more. I want to take some more questions, but I, I, you can read. I might say the, and that, this book is available free on download. I think. No,
1: it I, was available free. Now you got to pay for it.
0: No, I, I didn't pay. <laughs> Date for it. and I, I, switch, I, I di- we call it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's called crossing, a memoir. But let's take a few more questions. Any topics you like, uh, folks? And we'll take the um, yeah, the lady right up there. That's it. Right.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Sana Musharraf, and uh, I'm a student here in the Law and Accounting Program, postgraduate student. I was wondering when you were talking in the second segment about poverty, um, I would like to sh- hear your views about wealth and richness. Um, and at the same time, I would like to ask ask you about your views when you were talking about capitalism and the failure of capitalism what about social capitalism there's no ideal world and do these systems or do these structures vary in accordance with the mindsets of where they're being implemented the mindsets of the people well thank you
1: well that, it's it's a danger to be corrupted by the economist talk Says that I think it's happened in the last 30 years. The economists, and I can name the economists at the LSE, but not there, just there. People all over the world. The economists said, oh, max you, they c- I call it. Max U is who we should be. Just maximize use, you, you utility. incentives, incentives. Incentives behavior, 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 agency theory in the business schools was all very corrupting talk because it said be tough, be a capitalist, don't be ashamed of it, isn't that great? And then what they meant by it is not what I mean in my book called The Bourgeois Virtues which is a full life in this unfortunately named capitalism, But they mean prudence only, just maximize, screw everyone else. And that's a great danger and we must oppose it. So in in my books, it's kind of hard to get what I'm saying because I'm saying, Economists, stop doing that. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then on the other hand, I say to the other people, Pay attention to what the economists saying, are saying. Things are scarce. Stop being silly. So I've, I have to do both because I believe in both.
0: You can see it from both sides.
1: I can see it from both sides. And there we get back to male
2: and female.
0: Let's take a question down here.
2: Hi, I'm um, King's College London. Um, I just have a question about your ideas behind poverty and equality. Yeah. Um, So you've spoken both quite extensively, but I'm curious about understanding poverty. Do we see it as a comparative thing or do you see it as like an absolute? So do you look at it as in, I mean, if we consider that growth continues, where does poverty stop? Because it will always be relative.
1: Yes, I see it as absolute. And I think it truly is a fool's errand to see it relatively. I know it sounds good to be relativist. I'm a postmodern, and I I agree with that. But it's silly, because you can never eliminate the bottom 10% of any distribution, whatever. You can't eliminate the bottom 1%. It's hopeless. (laughs) Whereas, as some economists and sociologists have done, if you ask, what is enough for poor people to fully participate in the society, what is enough? Shoes, a bed, a roof, enough food, etc., etc., etc. If you start talking in those absolute terms, then poverty is something that can be solved. It's not just oh, gee, there's always the bo-. it's the opposite of the Lake wobicon effect. Um, there, there are always going to be a bottom 10 percent. So. So this relative stuff though people on the left and so on the right delight in it and it's again more on the, on the gini coefficient on oh there's any inequality is inequality that's not a proper ethical object
0: you, you you quite a lot you take the left wing position and you well, you attack it. I <laughs> but your politics are complicated, aren't they? I mean, right you're, you're, you're not down the line Republican, down the line right way. wing. No, I, you, it's uh, hard to uh, categorize uh, John you.
1: John really. Gray irritates me, if you want to know. Um, uh, no, I, I, uh, I'm not. I, I've been everything respectable in my life except a Burkean conservative or a Republican. <laughs> um, I've never voted Republican. I don't intend to. Um, but I—I I don't. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to be so com- complicated. I, I wish I was simple, and that's you could fun. just say, "Oh, she's a she's a Tory." Forget about her. <laughs> but that's not how I regard the world. I, I don't see it in these simple terms. In fact, I, I think the whole talk of wanting to put people in two categories either you're a progressive or you're a conservative is a ridiculous way of talking it's it's, it's to reduce all of politics to a single dimension and then what kind of craziness is that
0: we've got a lot of people who want to ask questions i'm going to have to only take one more i'm afraid so
2: I, painfully i'm going to have to say the last question down here on the yellow mic Hello, hi, Bill Simmons, LSE. Uh, thank you for a fascinating conversation so far. Um, I've just uh, working on a PhD proposal on this exact question. And...
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <We'll> <laughs> and always get
2: to laugh, that line. Uh, <laughs> <Yes. yeah. laughs> Which question? Uh, this exact... W- why economics can't explain the modern world very well at the moment. And the suggestion is that we have lots of uh, either very vague theories... Well, lots of separate theories, and when we put them all together, it doesn't work very well. No, we I get please. a lot of confusion, famously 10 economists and 11 opinions. You bet. And so therefore, we don't yet have a Newton in physics to take it all together, simplify, and... In- <laughs> 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 and, 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 and specifically on the idea of a switch... Uh, What caused the economic growth in the last 200 years or so? Um, I've also uh, been, that's part of one of the case studies that I'm doing, and I have gone through so many different uh, Nobel Prize winning economists' answers on this and concluded at the end of it that nobody actually knows what caused that economic growth. In fact, uh, and it's one of the greatest puzzles.
1: You're absolutely right. And it's the most important question facing the social sciences. Why did economic growth happen? Because the great enrichment is the most important fact in human history since the multiple um, um, domestication of plants and animals all over the world. And, and, And it is shocking that economists haven't solved this. Well, maybe not. Because look, if we spend on economics, on economic research, especially economic history, which is the, which is the scientific part of economics, uh, as a fraction of what we spent on radio telescopes or these crazy experiments at CERN going after the Higgs boson. Those are extremely expensive and would support hundreds of economic historians... <laughs> who would actually come to some useful scientific conclusion about this. Now, I, I of course believe that they'd come to my scientific conclusion. But if, if you want to make your life more, more, more difficult, read my book, uh, Bourgeois Dignity, and, and you'll see me going through, as patiently as I can bring myself to be, 30 theories some of them by Nobel Prize winners, um, some of them not. And they just go on and they keep saying things that ain't so or making up facts. I and mean, they don't do it on purpose. I'm not accusing these people of being liars, but they're, I think you're correct, they're muddled. And it's dangerous to be muddled about economic growth because it leads people to think well. If we just tax the rich more, that'll take care of it. Or well, if we just um, hang the the uh, people in the, in, in, the, in the city of London, that'll take care of it. Or if we go back to agriculture, that'll, I mean, yeah. Okay. Just let's finish, just give me your,
0: where you think the world will be in a hundred years time. I know you've said prediction is a fool's game, but I, I Just paint a picture for me of the world in in terms of, you know, social attitudes of of gender, of of, of race, of anything, as well as economics. But I just wonder where you see it going.
1: If we don't shoot ourselves in the foot, as we did in August 1914, actually, we didn't do it. Not all of us. The Europeans did it. And then they brought the rest of the world into this horrible quarrel that lasted basically till 1989. Um... If, if we don't do that act again, uh, and I look at the news from, uh, from the Crimea with great alarm on this point, then I expect the whole world in 100 years will become rich. That there's no reason why Sub-Saharan Africa can't be as rich as uh, uh, the United States or Britain. In fact, interesting, Prediction: I'll put down 100 pounds on it right now. In 100 years, <laughs> the great artists and intellectuals and scientists will all be black. And the reason for that is very simple: Sub-Saharan Africans have much larger genetic variation than any of us uh, uh, from from Europe or East, East or South Asia. Or And so what matters is the thickness of the top tail and some Mozart who's now herding his father's cattle or some Jane Austen who's um, hauling water for her family will be Mozart and Jane Austen in spades, redoubled and vulnerable. There'll be a lot of them. it, but 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 that that whole uh, th- phenomenon will be wonderful for us all. It's not that Britain or the United States or Japan will be damaged by the Chinese becoming rich or the Indians uh, becoming rich. I have somewhat more confidence that the Indians will become rich than the chinese, but not because but because they have a free society and China doesn't. And, Maybe that'll break and with disastrous results, but we'll have more violinists. <laughs> we'll have more great economists. We'll have more inventors, more business people, and we'll we in the uh, in the old Europe, <laughs> this was famously called, will will mightily benefit from that. And it's not what the 19th century economists offered to us. John Stuart Mill, right up to the last edition of his Principles of Political Economy, held out the vision of this future where through the division of labor and international trade, we'd get a little bit better off. And I'm, I'm an economist. I, Chicago school type, I have to they'll take my card away if I say anything against free trade. But but that's just a little bit of increase. That's maybe a doubling. What I'm talking about is an increase in the income per head in the world of on the order of five, six, ten, maybe more. And that's just going to that's a wonderful prospect for your grandchildren or great grandchildren.
0: And we end on that optimistic note. I know we could just uh, talk all, all, all night about these things, but we don't have time to do so. Thank you very much for taking part in this edition of Analysis at the London School of Economics. And of course, very special thanks to Professor Deirdre McCloskey.